Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast, the fastest growing podcast in women's health. Today's Monday, December 26, 2022. For those of you who celebrate, I hope you had a terrific Christmas yesterday, and I hope everyone who's able to is enjoying their Monday off from work today. Today, we start a series of four podcasts on the topic of periviable birth, which is a preterm birth that occurs just at the cusp of when a newborn might be able to survive somewhere around 23 to 24 weeks. This is one of the most difficult clinical situations in all of pregnancy for the parents, for the baby, and for the doctors. So we're gonna try to spend some time on it. Two of the four podcasts will be with doctors and two of the podcasts will be stories from parents from our high-risk birth story series. Today we start with Dr. Jessica Spiegelman, who's an MFM and was on this podcast a few weeks ago. Jessica and I give an introduction to periviable birth, what it is, why it is so problematic, and how we try to help parents make very difficult decisions during the process. Next week, I'm going to be joined by Dr. Anne-Marie Straustrup, who is a neonatologist or a NICU doctor and a return guest on the podcast to talk about the NICU care of babies born in the periviable time period. All right. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. We'll see you next Monday in 2023. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. All right, Dr. Jessica Spiegelman. Well, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. This has been a long time coming. I guess so. Amazing. It's great to have you here for our listeners. And then we're going to get into this when we talk about your history, which you didn't know I was going to ask you about. Go and tell your (laughs) personal history. I've known you a long time. You you were a resident in Mount Sinai. You came up in the ranks. You refused to work with me the first time. And then, (laughs) but here we go. As the world turns, you're back and we're together again. I couldn't resist. Amazing. (laughs) How are you doing today? I'm great. Excited to podcast? Very excited. Is this your first experience being a guest on a podcast? This is my first experience. But since you're of the generation younger than me, you do listen to podcasts, I right? listen to a lot of podcasts. All right. So I've heard the way people talk on them and I try to emulate it. <laughs> All right. So you're familiar with the podcast format. I am. All right. Good. So tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, how you got into medicine and so forth. I grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey, just a stone's throw over the George Washington Bridge from here. And I have wanted to be in medicine since I was in high school. Really? Why? Well, really, my dad suggested it. He said, you're good at science. (laughs) (laughs) My daughter's a nerd. You should go into medicine. (laughs) All right. Yeah. (laughs) And then I kind of just explored it and and liked it. I was an EMT in high school and Uh liked the medicine and thought I was going to be a pediatrician for most of my college life and Uh-oh. then got into medical school and loved my OBGYN rotation. So just that was it? You said, I love OBGYN. I'm yeah, not doing it. Took like two seconds. <laughs> wow. And then how did you end up at Mount Sinai for residency? I did an MSM sub I, which is basically like in your fourth year of medical school, you do a rotation where you pretend to be the intern. And so I applied to a bunch of them. I got one at Mount Sinai and I just loved it there so much that I wanted to come and be a resident. Wow. And then during your residency, for the record, everyone, Jessica was a terrific resident. And I'm not saying that to blow smoke up your butt. You were a terrific (laughs) resident. We told you at the time you were a terrific resident. 
And we we wanted you to work with us immediately, but you decided for some strange reason to do a fellowship in MFM. Yes. Yeah. How did that come to you? Well, my so I did an MFM sub-I and I uh. came into residency wanting to do MFM, which I didn't tell anybody my whole intern year because I wanted to like keep my options open. Maybe I'd like something else, but I didn't. So I just love high-risk pregnancy and I wanted to be better at it. <laughs> Well, but you did leave us to go to Columbia. I did. I did. Yeah, we weren't happy about that. I thought it's good to kind of vary your experience and see how different places practice and kind of get a, a different perspective. And I had a, a amazing experience at Columbia. And then you were amongst a like a back to back to back to back Sinai residents yeah. going to Columbia yeah. for fellowship. I was the third in a row. And so when I was a first year fellow, there was one of us in every class. And it was kind of a, a joke at Columbia that like their forceps numbers went up. Right. The three best fellows they <laughs> yeah. had all came from the Sinai residency. Exactly. If anyone out there at Columbia is listening. Yeah. I said that. <laughs> no, no, everybody was great. Yeah, and none of them are listening to this podcast. Probably. I can tell you that right Maybe now. they are. <laughs> well, now they will. And so you spent a couple of years working in New York City at NYU. And mm -hmm. then just recently, you came back yeah, to the so mothership. What I'm trying to do is just like hop around to all the hospitals, you know, right. <laughs> see how every single New York City hospital mm -hmm. functions. And if one day Mount Sinai grants you privileges back into their institution, <laughs> then we will see you in the hospital. But how's it been thus far coming back somewhat to your roots with, with our practice? And you have to say good things. No, it it has been really nice. It's been very good to kind of be around people who, who really trained me. So I feel really comfortable asking questions when I'm not sure and, you know, bouncing things, ideas off of people. And I just, it feels like coming home. Well, we feel the same way. It's been awesome. And then when we decided to do this podcast, we really went for, we're knee deep on this topic, uh, very viable birth, which is, which is really, really tough stuff. Um, I, I will just sort of preface this by saying this is a hard topic to podcast about. It's, it's hard to banter about it because it's so heavy. Yeah. It's some like in fellowship and in MFN, this is like, Whoa, like, and it's just, it's a lot. This it's, is the stuff yeah. I feel like you really need an MFM for because the counseling is so just nuanced and yeah. just takes so much experience. But I think it's important because when we deal with it in real life, we're kind of having people expect to, we expect them to learn a lot of information that we spend years training to learn right. very quickly and when they never thought they would have to deal with it. So having some background knowledge, I think could be helpful, although, you know, hopefully not you know, for people who are going to find themselves in this situation. Yeah. I mean, we'll get into exactly what, what this means and what we talk about. And we were talking about before how this is our first, you know, Helpful Woman podcast on this topic specifically, but we've sort of, you know, circled around it several times in other podcasts and some of the high-risk birth stories, you know, people are telling their story about they might be delivering around 23, 24, 25 weeks. I'm like, what do you do? How do you navigate that? You know, am I losing the pregnancy? Am I having very premature babies? Do I intervene? Do I not intervene? All the, you know, the medicine is complicated. The emotions are horrifying. It's so hard to sort of sort out what to do. And there's, you know, so much that goes into it. We had a podcast with Javi Karkowski who wrote a book and she had a whole chapter on this and we spoke about it. And so it's come up from time to time on the podcast, but it, it is even though it's a difficult topic, it's really important, particularly if there's anyone out here listening who unfortunately themselves is in this predicament, in this situation, 
or potentially someone who has or has had a family member or friend go through this to sort of understand what what it means or what it meant for them. And obviously for the people listening who maybe are in medicine or even, you know, OB in the OB world to just sort of get a, you know, some more information on the complexities of this topic. So thanks for suggesting it. And we'll try to give as, yes. as best, as, I guess, a discussion as possible. So how would you even define peri-viable birth? Like, what are we talking about here? So technically peri-viable the periviable period is defined as 20 weeks and zero days until 25 weeks and six days. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of it kind of depends on what the exact situation is. I think in practicality, the period that we most find the, having the most discussions around mm -hmm. is 22 weeks until 24 weeks and six days. That's right. kind of the three-week period where most of the decisions become more complicated, but technically 20 and zero to 25 and six. Right. And then also just to clarify, when when we as obstetricians talk about weeks, we have this strange system where we date pregnancies from the first day of the last period, right. or if that's unknown or if they had IVF, we start two weeks prior to conception, meaning the day the egg and the sperm meet each other, you're, you're two weeks, weeks and zero yes. days. And so that in our world, so we, we'd say all the time, you're 10 weeks, you're 12 weeks, you're 18 weeks, you're 20 weeks, whatever. And that's sort of, we always think about it, but it is sort of confusing, particularly in the beginning of pregnancy. We tell someone, you're four weeks. So like, what are you talking about? Like I had sex <laughs> two weeks ago. Like it doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And also sometimes you'll pull up old references like from embryology books or old books that talk about actual pregnancy weeks, weeks right, from the date of conception. And so sometimes there's a little bit of confusion there. There used to be a lot of confusion in New York state law regarding sort of what was the legal limits of termination of pregnancy? What were they talking about? That That's sort of been that law has been changed, but there there is discussion. So when we talk about weeks, we mean sort of what your obstetrician, what your midwife, what they will tell you, you are X weeks pregnant. And that means from the last period. So, okay, why is that gestational age period so complex? So it's a complicated period because the survival of a fetus or of a neonate after birth is really not assured if mm -hmm. delivery occurs during that period. And the limit of viability kind of used to be, I don't want to say universally, but, you know, in the United States, kind of generally accepted as being 24 weeks, definitely until the late 80s and probably into the 90s. And then as neonatal technologies have improved, the kind of limit of viability of when baby can be resuscitated and potentially survive outside of the uterus has moved earlier and earlier. And in some places, it's now as early as 22 weeks. And so depending on what the precise complication is that we're dealing with and kind of why a fetus might need to be delivered, the idea is what do we do in that kind of period where a baby could survive, but has a pretty high chance of not surviving if delivered and also has a very high risk of what we call morbidities, you know, really serious health complications that can be lifelong. Yeah, I mean, if a if a baby's born under 22 weeks, the likelihood the baby's going to survive at all is exceedingly low. It's hard to say zero because it has been reported, but yeah. it's it's we think of it as zero or close to it's zero. As close to yeah. zero as you can kind of statistically yeah. get. Yeah. And if the baby's born after like 26 plus weeks, the chance of survival is very, very, very high. And, you know, it's really interesting from a scientific standpoint, how over just the course of three or four weeks, the survival goes from zero 
to like 80%. I mean, right. it's just a crazy change in that very brief window and how much development takes place. And a lot of that is because the lungs sort of develop like sort of from pre-lungs to lungs at that time. <laughs> Essentially, that's one of the big reasons that happens. So that's one area of complexity. But also, you know, which is which is what makes it really hard is that a surviving baby does not mean a healthy baby, right? Right, And so you can have a baby that survives and does very well, does relatively well, and does not well at all, and is very, very sick for a short time or a long time. And people feel differently about that. Right. And, you know, that that's why it's so emotional. You know, if people have to decide between, well, my baby's not gonna survive and I'm gonna mourn the loss of a child versus, my baby might survive, but then has a very high chance of being very sick for a very long time. I mean, how do you make that decision, right? It's just very, very difficult. Yeah. Maybe for some people it's not difficult and that's okay, but it can be a very difficult decision to make. And if we have to make decisions about either whether we should deliver the baby if it's under our control, or if the baby's coming anyways, do we try to quote unquote save the baby? That's a very tough situation. Yeah, it's it's really hard. And, and you know, most people don't expect to find themselves in the situation. Some people have gone through it before and have, you know, certain conditions that might predispose them to having deliveries in this time period. And so baby familiar, but that's the exception. Most people who find themselves in this situation have really, you know, they didn't expect to be in it when they became pregnant. And it usually is a very quick we, you know, we either have to deliver the baby or the baby's coming and there's a lot of counseling that has to happen about what to do and expecting people to grapple through these decisions with no background and no warning is is really, really hard. Yeah, I mean, like you're saying before, like for us, you know, we have years and years of training and we've seen this over and over and we've talked it through over and over and we've thought about it and we've read about it. And it's still very difficult for even for us to wrap our heads around what is the right decision to make, you know, for the patient, whether if we were in the situation, like, like it's yeah. very, very hard. And we know as much as you can know, right? And pretty much like we have all the information available to us. And we thought about it. But for the vast, you know, for pretty much everyone who's in this situation, A, they have no medical training. Right. Right. And B, they've never had to think about this. Right. right? They've never had to grapple with it. And just on the front end, the information aspect, like, what does it mean to have a baby who has cerebral palsy? Or what is it like, what do these statistics mean? And how do I understand yeah. numbers? And then all the obviously emotional, social, religious, there's so much baggage that comes into it. And they've never had to think about it. And now like in the throes of this, here we go. Here's a, you know, 12 years condensed into 12 minutes. And then another thing that I think is hard is we give a lot of statistics in these situations, but the statistics don't really matter to an individual. Right. Because the, your outcome is your outcome. So it doesn't right. matter if... 80% of babies survive or 80% right. of babies don't survive or 80% of babies have cerebral palsy or whatever it is. If it's your baby that that happens to, it doesn't matter right. what happens to One them. or zero. Right, right, exactly. It's 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 really tough stuff. And the things we're talking about, I mean, we're talking about death, right? Which is very, very heavy, obviously. Medical issues like, and people don't, what does it mean to have a baby with chronic lung disease? I, I don't know. Is that, is it horrible? Is it, well, okay. And, you know, like, and it's sort of, you know, you can envision different situations and you can go online and you could find stories where, you know, you hear these miracle babies and, you know, my baby's perfectly fine or my baby is 
lung disease, but is great and is healthy and is going to Harvard and everything. Okay. And you can hear other stories, which is like, my baby's been suffering horribly for 12 years. And yeah. and there's a, and the reason that range is out there is because that range exists. It could be anything. Right. And like you said, statistics only like lean in one direction, but they don't tell you what's going to happen for you. And we just don't have guarantees in either direction. It's very hard. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really tough. And I think our job and when we're in this situation is to try and sort of make it as as clear for the patient as possible what the various different outcomes are, because there are some risks some people are willing to take that others might not be willing to take in terms of the health of their baby long term. And so it's just important for them to to know as much as we can get tell them. Yeah. And there's also, unfortunately, a lot of disagreement sometimes amongst the providers. And I don't mean disagreement in the sense that they sit around the room fighting about it, but just sort of, you know, you may you may have a nurse who has one angle on this yeah. and you may have a doctor who has another angle and a pediatrician who has a third angle. And that's based on their own experiences sometimes where they're like, oh, you know, give the exact same situation. Right. And these are three professionals who've seen this before. And one might say, oh, you should end the pregnancy. And one would say, oh, you should go for it. And it's just like, yeah. what? You know, because yeah. there's so much there's so much that goes into that and there's value and there's experience and there's, you know, emotions. Yeah. It's hard. Something that's really tough in that sort of in talking about that is coming at it as objectively as possible. And patients often ask like, well, what would you do? And I really have to say, I actually don't know what I would do. And right. we need to just kind of talk through what are the possibilities of the outcomes here. And just for the providers to stay as objective as possible and really try and help the patient come to the conclusion that's as right as possible for them without right. bringing in their own value systems. Right. I think that there's, when when somebody asks, what would you do? There's two ways that people approach that, or there's two things that that can mean. The first thing can sort of mean, I can't sort through all of this data and I can't figure out like, like, dude, you're the doctor. Tell me what the right, right. thing to do is. And that happens a lot. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we should tell them, sometimes we shouldn't. And that's a complicated, you know, sort of process when that's appropriate. And I find that in this situation, sometimes it's not that. Sometimes it's like, this decision is too much for me. Like, I can't yeah. I can't have this on my conscience for yeah. the rest of my life if I made the right decision, the wrong decision. I don't want the regret yeah. of doing this. And like, so please decide for me. And that's sometimes people will like call upon their spiritual advisor or yeah. like a family member and say, like, I need you to tell me what to do. Yeah. Just so it's like that burden is lifted yeah. off of me. Because it is, this is something that'll weigh on you for the rest of your life mm -hmm. in either direction. And it's it's hard. Yeah. yeah. There are some situations where patients ask us for direction mm -hmm. and we really should give it. Yeah. And I think this is one where we really can't decide yeah. for them. They really have to decide, maybe not for themselves, maybe with the help of people in their lives, but unless there's a clear medical reason to go one way or the yeah, other, yeah, yeah. It, it's very hard to be directive in yeah. this situation. And sometimes we can help people say like, okay, like if you feel A, B, C, and D, it would sort of lead you to this choice. Right. Whereas if you felt this, this, yeah. this, and this, yeah. you go to this choice to sort of say like, you know, if you're this kind of person, or if you right. believe this, or if you want this, or if you, you know, how would you feel about this? And you sort of, we try to help people make a decision, but yeah, it's hard for me to say, oh, you should do this again, unless obviously medically one is clearly better option than the other. Let's take a step back for a second. What are the situations that might place someone in this peri-viable delivery 
conundrum. So periviable birth is kind of a, a subset of preterm births. And mm-hmm. so there's a few different reasons why somebody might have a preterm delivery. And I like to kind of think about it as either spontaneous mm-hmm. or kind of indicated. Mm-hmm. Spontaneous is somebody is in preterm labor or their cervix is dilating and they're basically their body is delivering the baby and you know, we can maybe try and slow things down, but but that's just what's probably going to happen. They break their water or something like that. Right. And then indicated is medical situations where we are telling someone, well, it's not safe for you to be pregnant anymore. At this gestational age, probably the most common one would be severe preeclampsia or HELP syndrome, some, you know, hypertensive condition that is se- severe enough that continuing pregnancy would endanger the life of the mother. And there's other situations like that too, but I think that would probably be the most common one. Right. There's sometimes a third where it's the fetus is in trouble. That's true. Too, right. So yeah. if the baby's really like growth restricted and we say, you know, if we don't deliver, the baby's going to die inside. Yeah. And so we can either deliver or not deliver. And then right. that's again, that sort of brings about the same situation other than you know, it's 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 a little bit different. Yeah, growth restriction at that gestational age, often the fetus is too small right. to resuscitate. But but yeah, you could sort of get into that and there's a margin of error of ultrasound. So maybe right. we're underestimating the weight of the baby. And so we we could right. deliver. And, and yeah, so growth restriction would definitely be another one. Yeah. And let's talk first about the one where someone's in spontaneous preterm labor or their water breaks. And that's sort of the one that, you know, hits people usually out of nowhere. Right. Again, if they've had this before, then maybe they've been prepped, so to speak. But for most people, it's their first pregnancy. It's yeah. the first time this happened to them. And they sort of like they're 22, 23 weeks and suddenly their water breaks yeah. or suddenly they're having contractions. They come to hospital and like you're five centimeters dilated. Right. And so there isn't often a ton of time to sort out, number yeah. one. And number two, you don't always know the day they're going to deliver. That's the other thing. You sort of like, all right, well, if you deliver today, right? And as we, you know, as we said before, there's a like a four week period where survival goes from zero to 80%. So every day you stay pregnant, that number is going to bump up and up and up and up. And so this counseling has to sort of reinvent itself every day, every other day. I mean, whatever it is, it's very, very frequent. And so we're sort of left with three options at that point. You can either sort of say, oh, I did not want to be in this situation and I'm going to like actively terminate a pregnancy, which is obviously very complex for a lot of reasons. Uh, Some of them nowadays are just simply legal, right? Whether Mm -hmm. that's even an option for you, it depends where you live. It depends on the rules, depends on the laws. That's its own discussion. But then also, you know, this is not something people want to do presumably they're 22 23 yeah, weeks a, yeah this is this is not what they were like signing up for right and then there's also sometimes technically it could be challenging based on exactly the circumstances what that means if it means just letting a birth happen that's one option yeah the second option is sort of to like do everything humanly possible to sort of quote unquote save the baby and there's certain medications we might give to like stop the labor or to maybe improve the outcomes like steroids, magnesium, and that's sort of during the pregnancy, you know, and then there's like a subset of that is what do you do if the baby's born? So explain where that comes in as a complicated decision. Yeah, so I I usually break it down exactly like that for patients. So the first kind of decision point is, I actually do it backward. So first, if the baby comes out today, would you want the neonatologist to resuscitate the baby because you do have that choice about resuscitation versus non-resuscitation. 
Sometimes. Sometimes. Right. Yeah, it depends on the exact situation. Right. I think that's, I think that's important. Let's, let's talk about it for a second. The, once a baby, if a baby's inside the mother, well, again, we'll take out some of the laws that are current, but if the baby's inside the mother, she has the decision about whether to get take medications, not take medications, right. things to, you know, yeah. to steroids, not steroids, this, 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 fine. Once the baby is outside, right, and this baby yeah. is born, the parents have the majority of decision making, but there's some things that they can't, they're not allowed to decide right. for their for their child. And that's that's a gray zone yeah. of exactly when it flips that the pediatrician's like, like if a baby's born and is, you know, eight pounds and the parents say like, don't resuscitate this right. other baby, yeah. the neonatologist is like, no, we're, we're not listening to, to you. Yeah. I'm like, we're doing this, yeah. right? <laughs> Whereas if the baby is, you know, like, you know, half a pound, then yeah, they'll yeah. typically listen. And exactly where that cutoff is, is very complicated and, and it's gray. it's a bit NICU dependent also. Yeah. It depends on the exact place yeah. where you are. I think, you know, 25 mm. weeks, most neonatologists yeah. will say, we're going to resuscitate yeah. no matter what. But before that, yeah. depending on the NICU. Right. So uh, let's say we're in that zone. The yeah. parents, yeah. So you, you ask them the question, would you want to resuscitate the and, baby? And so that decision really is dependent on talking through the range of outcomes that might happen if we resuscitate. So what are the chances of survival? What are the chances of what we call intact survival, which is a term I actually don't really like, but mm. basically is a you know, survival without really serious health consequences, which could be things like chronic lung disease, blindness, deafness, cerebral palsy, really serious neurodevelopmental delays. And I think that conversation is really useful to have with the neonatologist because they are the people who take care of the babies long term. And so they can give a little bit more insight into what a prolonged NICU stay really looks like and what they see in their follow-up clinic with these kids. And, you know, the most very, you know, up-to-date data the most recent data is is just kind of useful to have them around. Right. I think that's a good joint right. conversation to have. And it also depends on the NICU, yeah. right? It depends totally. where you're about to totally deliver. It depends on the NICU. Every NICU is going to be a little bit different right. and have different gestational age cutoffs and different right. outcomes. And is your baby going to be sort of born here and stay here in our NICU or does your right. baby need Gets to be stabilized and transferred? Yeah. Again, that depends where you, where you find yourself. Or do you need yourself. to be transferred? Yeah. Is there time to transfer with the mom to a right. higher level NICU? Right. So sort of... Talking through what the range of outcomes might be is helpful, I think, to do along with the neonatologists. And that is, I think, kind of step one. If the baby comes out, let's say the baby's coming out. If the baby comes out, what do you want us to do with the baby? Right. The options are not resuscitate or or nothing. The options are really resuscitation or sort of comfort care, basically giving medications and whatever is needed to make the baby comfortable, keep the baby warm and give the baby as much time as possible with the family and the family as mm. much time as possible with the baby. So it's not like, oh, you don't want resuscitation. We're just going to abandon you. It's, right. it's really trying to maximize that time. And that's kind of the first decision point that yeah. patients need to think about. That's a hard decision point. And I think, you know, when I was speaking to, to Javi, on, on this, she had a really good take that it's almost like we're asking this woman or this family, what do you want this story to be? Yeah. Right. Is this the story of a very premature birth, which has a whole range of possible outcomes? It's yeah. very scary and may end horribly, may end very well, everything in between, like mm -hmm. it's sort of that. Or is this a story of a pregnancy, pregnancy loss that I'm yeah. miscarrying, mm -hmm. essentially? And it could go either way yeah. based on what we do afterwards. Right. And if it's a story of a very premature birth, then 
we're going to behave in a certain way. It's going to be very medicalized. We're going to give a ton of interventions. We have 16 people there when you deliver. They're going to resuscitate and do all these things. Or if it's a story of a pregnancy loss, we're going to dim the lights. We're going to keep you comfortable. The baby's going to deliver. We're going to wrap the baby up, keep the baby, you know, warm. And again, comfort care. You're going to hold the baby and the baby's going to pass away. Yeah. Right. And neither of those stories are what anyone wanted. Right. Right. But it's going to be one of those two. That's sort of what we're saying. And so you have to make that choice. And then that dictates a tremendous amount down the tree. Right. Like you said. And then, you know, choosing what we call full intervention, like, you know, every possible intervention for the baby doesn't guarantee you a baby that's going to live. No. Yeah. Um, And sometimes I think parents really need to know that what ultimately ends up happening is they have to make the choice to redirect care and right. to withdraw care right. from a baby that's too sick. And and that is a whole other set of right. decisions to make and, and maybe a situation people don't want to be in. Maybe it's a little bit easier to make the decision now as opposed to after all these interventions have been done to say, well, we're going to, you know, redirect our care. Right. Right. OK, so they they've made that decision and. What is, you said, you're going backwards. So what are the next things? So presuming parents want kind of everything done after the baby is born, then we start talking about obstetric intervention. So what can we do while you're still pregnant to try and maximize the outcome, optimize the outcome? So we have medications that we can give, steroids to help with lung maturity. It also reduces the risk of, of brain damage, magnesium to reduce the risk of cerebral palsy. We have, if someone's in preterm labor, medications that can stop contractions and potentially buy us some time to give some of these medications. Right. And then for somebody who's broken their water, we have antibiotics that we can give to try and prolong prolong pregnancy. So so that's kind of one set of obstetric interventions to try and optimize outcomes. Right. And the other Which, set... And that set almost always is a yes, right? Yeah, there's, there's very gestational yeah. age, but yeah, yeah. There's very little downside. There's very little downside. Yeah. Unless parents are saying, at this gestational age, I wouldn't want intervention, right. but at this next week, I right, do, right. and then we hold those things, hoping they make it to that next week because yeah. the, you know, the closer you give them to delivery, the better they are. Right, but it, but essentially, if if the decision is we're going to be resuscitating the baby yeah. after birth, almost always you would it get, makes sense to do those things because why not make it an easier resuscitation it, potentially? Exactly, and yeah, they're going to be much better if you give yeah. these medications. And I know where you're going next with the next decision. Yeah. That's that's hard. So the next decision is is really mode of delivery, yeah. and and that's really tough because the medications don't really have a downside for right. the mom, but the mode of delivery really can, and and that is a really tough decision. So. Babies at this gestational age are more likely to be breached or more likely to mm. be butt down instead yeah. of head down. And it's not the safest mode of delivery in a breech baby, especially in the second trimester, to deliver vaginally because there can be some complications right. with delivery. So if we are going to do the quote unquote safest delivery for the the fetus, the that's a C-section. And at that gestational age, C-sections are more complicated. The uterus isn't fully developed. And so often we have to make a vertical incision on the uterus, which is called a classical C-section. It goes through the very muscular, what we call contractile portion of the uterus, it can have really serious implications during that delivery and in future deliveries higher bleeding risk during that C-section. And then in future deliveries, you will always need a C-section, higher risk of uterine rupture, which is the uterus kind of opening up at the scar. And so that has very serious implications for the mother. And so after we've kind of established, okay, well, we want to do everything for the baby after birth, the question is, 
But do you want us to do a C-section if the baby's breech or if there is some right. fetal distress? Right. And and the same sort of the link question is, do we want to even check for fetal distress right. during the birth? Because yeah. if, we're, if we're not going to do a C-section for it, do we want to know? Do we not want to yeah. know? It's it's that's a really I find that that's a really tough one for people because it, people are like, all right, you know, do I guess I'll resuscitate the baby and yeah. I guess I'm on board with all these medications. But whoa, you're talking about like really a C-section of 23 weeks. Mm-hmm. It's like. I don't know if I, I don't know if I want to sign up for that. If I'm, you know, young and I plan on having a lot yeah. of kids, this is a big, big change to my future, you know, pregnancy. And there's a difference between C-section just for breach and a C-section for fetal distress. Because right. if you're doing, a, if you're monitoring the the fetus and you are noticing fetal distress and then you're doing like an emergency C-section, yeah. those outcomes are going to be even worse. Right. Because that baby's already not doing well. Right. Whereas if it's just labor, then maybe... Right. a little bit better of an outcome compared to if you're doing it for fetal distress. So should we monitor right. or should we not monitor is the right. other question. And it's also hard to know in any given situation, how much is the C-section going to improve outcomes to the baby? Because right. it could improve it zero yes. and it could improve it a lot potentially because yeah. we don't know what it's going to be like necessarily during the birth. Like there could be a breach delivery that goes fine I mean, right. for the baby. And so yeah. it's, it's, it's pretty hard to make yeah. that decision. I agree. And I think where people get confused is that choosing full intervention postnatally does not mean that you need to have a C-section. Right. And I think people kind of conflate those a little bit, but it really, each each decision is a decision. There's, yeah. You know, every, every angle of this has its own decision point. Yeah. And then probably the, the last question that they must answer is after hearing all this, are we continuing the pregnancy or not? Right. So then right. kind of working backward, the yeah. question is, well, do you want to be in this situation at all? Nobody does. But is it worth, you know, for you and your own value system, do you want to go through any of this right. as we've described it? Or do you want to just end the pregnancy now? And and there's now a lot of, unfortunately, legal issues around right. this. But yeah. but there are always a lot of legal yeah, issues around true. this based that's on what true. state you're in. And it's it's that just it's just a little more highlighted now yeah. and and <laughs> and more complicated now in right. in several of those yes. places but yes it was that was always a very complicated always one. always um, complicated i mean in in new york less complicated obviously yeah legally i mean it's complicated yeah. socially emotionally for a lot of people obviously right. across the board but it's uh yeah legally it's it's we can leave that aside for a different <laughs> podcast yes you know I, i've always found that and I think you just described it really, really well, sort of the the framework of how we make these decisions. I think one of the important points, like when I'm training the residents and the fellows and talking about this is, you know, what you just went through is really, right, that's hard stuff. And this is not something that can just be discussed with someone at the bedside, standing there holding your clipboard for five minutes and then expect them to make a decision. This is one of those like, all right, we need to sit down. Yeah. Like I need this a is chair. This a pull up a chair. Right. Yeah. I need I a, chair. a chair. Yeah. I need a chair. <laughs> or this is something where, you know what? I'm going to come back with the NICU yeah. doctor, with your nurse, with your doctor, like and the five of us or whatever it is are going to sit down together and talk through all of this at the same time. We're going to schedule an hour. Like this is not going to be a short conversation. Right. Now, again, sometimes you don't have that time if someone's like in the throes of labor, but most of Often there's there's time. enough time to get an hour or two or whatever it is. And I think that it's a really important point on the patient side. If you find yourself or know someone who's in a situation like this and they haven't had a very long conversation with someone, you need to, yeah. right? This is something that absolutely needs a lot of time 
to discuss, or at least you should be offered a lot of time to discuss. Sometimes people know immediately what they want to do, and that's fine. Like, you don't have to talk for an hour, but <laughs> this is legitimately complicated and confusing. Yeah. And I would say that's a really important lesson for listeners that you need to have a long conversation with someone about this to really try to make this decision. And they should be having this with you. And if it hasn't happened, you should ask for it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that when I, whenever I have these conversations, I, like you said, I literally pull up a chair. I sit there for a long time. I come back with the NICU. I come back with the her nurse. I, you know, we have a very extended conversation. And a lot of the time it's very circular, like going back. Yeah. Because how could it not be? You're talking about issues that somebody never thought they would have to discuss that they don't understand yet. And so just repeating yourself as much as possible, as much as the patient needs you to is is really important and and really making sure that you've given them all the information that they need to make the best decision that they can. Yeah, I think what ends up happening practically is under 22 weeks, it's unusual to have a successful resuscitation yeah. of a newborn, which would make it very unusual to do a C-section. Right. People might choose to do magnesium or steroids, you know, whatever, again, yeah. if, if they're not so sure at the gestational age of this, because again, the, the harm isn't so great, but under 22 is very tough. 22 to 23 is very sort of hospital NICU situation yeah. dependent. I'm not so peppy positive about 22 to 23 week. The outcomes are really not so great. Yeah. And so it ends up being more practically in that 23 to 25 week window and sort of at what point are we going to flip yeah. from the, you know, this is really not going to work to this might really work. And some people want to flip at 23 weeks, other 23 and a half, other 24, you know, sort yeah. of, and, and it sort of goes because by the time we get to 25 plus weeks at a, you know, high quality NICU, pretty much everyone's resuscitating, yeah, you're doing all these things. And under 23, it's kind of iffy and it's really in that two week window. Yeah. So it's not that kind. But like you said, there are situations like if someone's water breaks at 22 weeks, you might not do all these things today, but I don't know what she's going to deliver. Right. She could be pregnant for two and a half more weeks, or in even, which case, even yeah. 20 weeks. Yeah. There are people who break their water at 20 weeks and that's, you know, the earliest point where we would give antibiotics to prolong right. the latency of the pregnancy because we don't, I mean, some people will deliver within the first 48 hours or the first seven days, but others will last yeah. several weeks and even months. Right. So it, that's a earlier gestational age where we would have these conversations as opposed right. to somebody in full-blown pre-drum labor at 20 right. weeks. You know, there's not much that we can do. Exactly. And so for people listening again, if if you're unfortunately in this situation or you've been in this situation or you know someone in the situation has been in this situation, I think some of the takeaway points are it's legitimately very complex and very confusing medically, emotionally, like intellectually, it's just, it's hard. It's very hard to sort of know what to do. And so if you're feeling a lot of ambivalence, that's normal. I would say number two, absolutely positively, this is not a simple decision, or it, especially if you're between like 23 and 25 weeks. And so if someone came in and said, here's what's happening, here's what needs to be done, probably you need to like raise your hand and ask a question and say, hey, can we like talk about this further? That sometimes happens. Sometimes yeah. people say, yeah, I walked in and the doctor said, well, you're 23 weeks and, you know, game over. And they said, okay, game over. And like, that's it. But I don't, I, I think that that's, it depends. I think yeah. that that requires some more conversation. And I think if you're fortunate 
enough to have a lot of resources and support, yeah, bring them in. Bring everyone in. Yeah. This is hard. Yeah, it's a really, really tough decision. And that's why it just requires so much counseling and discussion. Yeah. And often, you know, where we practice, we're fortunate enough to practice in a place that has all these resources available. But the majority of people are going to deliver or present to hospitals that don't have these resources. And so it might mean, am I better off being yeah, transferred? You can ask to be transferred. Yeah. Like, am I in the wrong hospital? Like, yeah. is this something you're not dealing with on a, on a regular basis? And maybe I should be transferred if there's time yeah. or where's my baby going after right. birth if we're trying to do everything? If there's time, it's always better to transfer mom. Yeah. There isn't always time, but yeah. outcomes for, for neonates are better if they are born in the place where they're going to be resuscitated. Right. Wow. Spiegelman. Oof. Way to way to way to really start our day off with some heavy stuff. But again, it's 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 really important. And when these situations do come up, it is crucial. And this is frankly, this is why we have a job. I mean, yeah. this is this is the real this is, you know, mm-hmm. this is the big leagues yes. of MSM, unfortunately. Yeah. But hopefully, as we continue to improve with neonatal care and prevention of preterm birth, this will be less common, but I think unfortunately these situations will always exist. And hopefully this podcast will have been helpful for for people out there. I hope so. Thanks for coming, Speaks. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.